Um, you know, Mandy showed us this app. What was it called? Big Clock. Mm-hmm. Sure, that's what it was called. <laughs> She was weird. She wouldn't show it to us, but she was describing it. Uh, so Sounds it's like easier to clock. see like a countdown. Can we use this as the intro? Maybe. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> This is Four Friends Fight About Film, a podcast about movies and things more important than movies, if we ever find any. Today's theme is directors. We'll be picking one of our favorite directors and talking about three of that director's films. So to start us off, say your name, and if you had to pick a director to direct your life, who would it be, Jordan? I think I have to go with Werner Herzog, because although my life would then be filled with terrible, terrible things, turmoil, strife, bears, problems. An early cool death. Accents. It would be narrated very well, yeah. very thoughtfully. It would be beautiful. Jordan, it would have. It would have I would these... be. I would be honored to direct a movie about your life, <laughs> Jordan. Please, it's been my life's ambition. <laughs> and there would be penguins in it. Yet another impression no one will understand. <laughs> no, I think our listenership will get that one. Gibby, go. The director to direct my life. What was the guy that directed Irreversible? Gaspar Noé? <laughs> There's no way I'd have him direct <laughs> I just came up with that. And you just high-fived yourself. High-fived himself. <laughs> this is Hudson. I'm going to go with uh, 80s Spielberg. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so like, oh, like, so an, 80s, year, like an 80-year-old Spielberg? The, 19, the movies of Spielberg in the 1980s. I bet if you'd given me one guess, <laughs> I could have guessed that was what you were going to pick. You guys yeah. didn't know I had three options down there. They were all the same thing. <laughs> yeah, Spielberg, 70s, Spielberg, 80s, 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 Spielberg, 90s. Uh, this is Lance. I'm going with George Lucas because I think he would make like a trilogy of my life. And then after this really satisfying story of my life, I'd get the horrible pre- Equals about my life, like how I originated. Like how your parents with, had sex. And yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> and, and then, you get sold, then you get sold <laughs> to Disney. Yeah. <laughs> then I'd get sold to Disney. It'd be filled with CGI lizards. It'd be great. J.J. Abrams would play with you. Mm-hmm. Solar flares everywhere. Oh, no. I don't like this version of my life either. <laughs> you chose it. So we asked you guys on Facebook what your three favorite films by your favorite directors were. Normally we do the imitation thing. We're going to skip that this week and we're going to play a game. Ding, 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 ding. Song, music. Cool. Game. (laughs) Alrighty. So I will read a list of movies and you guys have to tell me who the director is. The first one to answer gets a point. The one with the most points at the end wins. Are we seriously doing this? Yeah, we're doing it. You guys can play along at home. Bonus points for those of you that suggest Suggested these movies and end up stumping. Just name us. the movies. Let's go. Uh, cut. Sympathy for Lady that Vengeance. That guy. Uh, John Park Woo. Old, yeah. old boy. Um, Chan Luke Park. Yep, yeah, that's one. You guys all got, got it, it wrong. No, uh, I was right. Jacob York gave us that suggestion. Some Heart good, of Glass. Yeah. Encounters at the End of the World. Werner Herzog. Werner Herzog. Ding. That's Jordan gets a point. Joe Parisi gave us that. Why uh, is that not fair? Because I've seen those movies. Because you named Herzog as your guy. You know what's not fair? This is not fair to our listeners. After the wedding. Can't believe we're doing this. (laughs) Suzanne Beer. Oh, Gibby nailed it. Uh, Nicole Breyer Bryan. (laughs) Breyer Bryan? Yep. Sorry, Nicole. It's it's much better to screw up their name than make fun of their voices. (laughs) That was her suggestion. Wrong move. 
The American Friend. Wim Wenders. Wim Wenders. Good job. Davy Gibbs gave us that one. What the f*** are we doing? The Mirror. (laughs) Stalker. Andre Rublev. The thing is, I know the answer, and I'm, I'm <laughs> so disgusted by this. He doesn't Andre know it. Tukarski. Oh, Tukarski. Uh, Bob Elstock gave us that suggestion. All right, oh, so uh, wait, who won that? Who got the most points? Gibby? Well, I think I, I got two. Yeah, Gibby. Well, I got two points. He got two points, and I get the first one. I get Chan Wook Park, even though I, no, I, don't, I, I know who it was. I know who lost, our listeners. Our <laughs> listeners lost. <laughs> Lance, that was fun. They were playing along at home. They were keeping they up with what point, how many nope, points they, they got. They turned it off. They turned Guys, it off a while back. C- contact us on Facebook. Let us know how many points Tell you Lance got. Tell Lance how many points you got. It's yeah. the honor God. system. We believe everything you send us. LanceHerd at gmail.com. <laughs> That's not my yes, it is. <laughs> if you guys want your favorites read on the show, you can leave your comments at facebook.com slash fightaboutfilm. The idea of this show was to take one director that we personally like, not necessarily our favorite director, and pick three of their movies. Not even necessarily their best three movies, but three movies that we find intriguing about that director. I can't remember who came up with this idea, but it was a really good one. I like this because this kind of gives us an opportunity to get into some movies we wouldn't normally get a chance to get into. Some of the lesser known films. And I think when we talked about doing this podcast, one of the reasons we wanted to do it was to introduce people to movies they would not have otherwise seen. And I think that this allows us to do that a little bit. All right, Gibby, who's your director? My choice for director is Albert Brooks. He's actually the only one of the four that we picked today who directed, wrote, and stars in each of his movies. Sounds like a real egomaniac. Yep. It's funny you say that because he (laughs) plays that very, very well. I don't think he's that in real life, but I think he loves that character. Albert Brooks was born in 1947. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't scripted. (laughs) He was actually born in 1947, his name was Albert Einstein. Pretty cool. His real last wow. name is Einstein. Are you serious? Yeah. Why change it? Yeah. I, I actually said that in a text a few weeks ago. He did. No one cared. Yeah. <laughs> um, we sure didn't. I'm mad. So you can see, I mean, immediately that's going to start your... I texted and no one cared. <laughs> but oh, you're that's making fun of me. It's like Mickey Mouse. <laughs> hey, guys, come on. <laughs> guys, listen to me. I'm talking. I mean, how long have you been on this Albert Brooks kick? Since I saw Defending Your Life in 1992. Wow. You have always been a big Albert ago. Brooks pusher. Yeah. yeah you all... You dressed as him for Halloween one year, I, I think. Did. Well, I think because he's an erotic fellow with big curly hair. Did you say ero- an erotic <laughs> fellow? <laughs> Much like me, I guess. Man, I wish I had watched uh, it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he also, neurotic fellow, I should say. Neurotic with an N. Big curly hair, so it kind of hit me. Anyway, I really think Albert Brooks is an underappreciated comedy genius. Over the last two weeks, I watched a lot of his movies and a lot of his comedy bits from the 70s, and he's just hilarious. He puts on a character much like Larry David as the anxious, nervous, huge ego type guy, and it gets me. Uh, I mean, he's probably most well known as being the voice of Marlon, Nemo's father in the Pixar films, Finding Nemo and Finding Dory. I knew we couldn't make it two minutes into a podcast without you talking about Pixar. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right, Lance, who's your director? Oh, I am so excited tonight. Finally, 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 we get to the films of Powell and Pressburger. All people who love film eventually come across the movies of Michael Powell and Emmett Pressburger. There's a chance you've never heard of either one of these names, which is an unfortunate and perplexing reality of their work, namely that they've gone so unnoticed over the years. But that is starting to change. Much like Martin Scorsese, who has played a major role in getting their films revived and rewatched over the past several years, I am a shameless Powell and Pressburger promoter. I will talk about them to anyone willing to listen and give new films a try because I think their movies 
are some of the most unappreciated gems of the film canon. If I could live in the cinematic universe of any filmmakers, it would be theirs. It is a landscape filled with a dreamlike aura, fascinatingly flawed characters, and it walks this line between gritty realism and fantasy escapism that draws people of all kinds to the movies. Powell, the British director, and Pressburger, the Hungarian screenwriter, teamed up to form a production company called The Archers, which was responsible for many of the greatest films of the 1940s and 1950s. Their movies are an eclectic mix of fantasy films, war films, musicals, a horror film, epics, and deep character studies. Uh, I didn't pick the three best Archer films, but I will get to them at some point in later episodes as one of my 10 favorite films of all time is actually an Archer movie. If I were to make a list of top 100 movies, several of their movies would be in that list. Yeah, I completely agree with you. You turned me on to Paul and Pressburger, and I was blown away and couldn't believe that you don't hear about their movies. It's shocking. Also, it's really also weird. you turned Hudson on. It is really weird how, how little appreciation their movies get. Fortunately, that is starting to change some. Because of people like you. Because of people like me and Martin Scorsese, a two-man wrecking crew. <laughs> you guys. <laughs> All right, Jordan. I'm going Rogue. <laughs> Nicholas Rogue. Does he have a movie coming out this Christmas? No. Nicholas Rogue One, oh. a Star Wars story? <laughs> oh. High five. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody so high five. How many high fives didn't he direct a give himself? Mission Impossible movie, Nicholas Rogue Nation. Nope. How, how many more of these do you have? have? <laughs> so there's like a list of these. This is what he spent all his time yeah. doing. He didn't, he didn't prepare for I don't the really movies. have any preparation on my yeah. own movies, but I got a lot of Rogue One jokes. Well, in the 1970s and 80s, he was the master of mind bending, time twisting, thought provoking, erotically charged bling, cinematic bling, wonders. Bling, bling, bling. But Rogue would soon become one of the most unique and hugely influential British directors of the modern era with criterion worthy output such as. Walkabout, Don't Look Now, and Insignificance. Rogue's films are often told in a cut-up, non-linear style, frequently involving a sort of looping flashback quality. His unique approach to storytelling is only matched by his unfaltering fearlessness in putting his ideas on the screen for all to see. He's been one of my favorites since I saw Don't Look Now when I was in college. Alrighty, my pick is the very obscure, very underappreciated John Hughes. <laughs> oh, what did he that? do? The highly influential writer, director, and producer, known most for his high school movies in the 1980s. I feel like he's well-respected in a nostalgic kind of I grew up on his movies kind of way, but I don't necessarily think he's gotten the respect he deserves as a true filmmaking talent. Comedy generally isn't respected come award season and Hughes was never nominated for his films, but I'd argue he's one of our greatest screenwriters. His scripts are so funny and so quick, a master of dialogue, balancing humor and heart better than just about anybody else. He rarely gave interviews and by the 1990s shunned publicity completely, withdrawing from public life, only occasionally writing films under the pen name Edmund Dantes. He died of a heart attack in 2009 while he was a young 59 years old, leaving an incredible legacy behind. One of those deaths, too, I remember when he died, I was legitimately depressed that day. Yeah. He, he had a major impact on me, as I think he did most people my age and around my age. I love that you picked this one. I, I, honestly, I wish we could do a whole episode about just John Hughes. Yeah. It's a great pick. Well, all right, Gibby, why don't you start with your uh, number three Albert Brooks film? So my first pick is his debut film as a writer and director, 1979's Real Life. In it, Albert Brooks plays a comedian named Albert Brooks. And he's been this marginally famous comedian in the film who wants to break out of comedy world and do something important, do something big. So his idea is to create a film about a normal family in Phoenix. A uh, little backstory, in 1973, PBS came out with a show called An American Family, which was basically the first documentary, first reality show. Uh, this, is, this was a novel idea in the 70s. So 
was the first movie about reality television. Yeah, pretty much. First it's movie the first about movie about something horrible. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. That's a good landmark. <laughs> in the movie, he plays the comedian as an egotistical know-it-all who has no idea that he's kind of an idiot. And he definitely wants us to know that the whole process is very expensive. He says it about 15 times in the first 10 minutes about how expensive this thing is. One of the reasons it's so expensive is that Albert has gotten four of the six most advanced digital cameras ever. And this is in the 70s. There's these cameras that are white and they cover your whole head. And it looks like a giant helmet with black lens where the face would typically be. Yeah, I'll file that under who gives a <laughs> It's funny. Were these, were those, was that a real camera? Yeah. Well, no, I think it's just a joke. Oh. So this is what the camera looks like. Again, do you understand the medium we are working in right now? I can't show people who are listening to this what that camera looks I like. I just wanted you to agree that that's funny. That's funny, Gary. Well, this is funny. <laughs> I'm most uh, excited because this appears to have Charles Grodin. Yes. Oh, Charles Grodin. One of the funny things about the camera is they're in about every scene of the movie. So if there's something kind of serious happening on screen, in the background, there's this guy walking around in this ridiculous looking white camera. <laughs> that's funny. And so, I mean, the jokes in this film are very subtle. I don't think that Brooks is like a Will Ferrell type comedian where you just... Because he's not funny? Because he's no, not I a comedy genius. <laughs> I think he is a comedy genius. Anyway, so in the film, there's a thousand families they try to choose from. And they narrow it down to Charles Grodin's family. Charles Grodin plays a veterinarian with a normal wife and two cute kids. And so Brooks takes them out to where they live in Phoenix and they buy a house across the street. So the film is just... <laughs> I'm so confused. <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> We should really be offering an apology to Gibby here because none of us have seen any Albert Brooks movies. Right. Usually, he's relying on these guys the to help me con- out. My convoluted <laughs> plot I've ever heard. He's like a reality producer. He's got this big camera and he picks up like yeah. a veterinarian with some kids. And like, okay. Uh. <laughs> also, a uh, little tidbit: this movie made a whopping three hundred and sixty thousand dollars at the box office. Really, three hundred sixty thousand yeah. dollars? And so, in nineteen seventy nine money, that's like three hundred and eighty thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so is Charles, so, is Charles uh, Grodin the dad from Beethoven? Yes, because that was part of what just that confused was his, me so much on you yeah. telling the plot was that I thought you started describing Charles Grodin the dad from Beethoven. Beethoven. <laughs> what a bizarre career he's had, by the way, of Charles Grodin. Yeah. He was like a legitimate comic force in the seventies and kind of even into the eighties. Fantastic, 80s. yeah. Then he starts doing these movies. You're like, eh, what's he doing that for? And then he becomes this like angry political talk show host. And yeah. then he went from fifty years old to ninety <laughs> yeah, years old, so old in the course of one day. And now I don't know where the hell he is. So here's a quick synopsis that I probably should have just done instead of what I did. A pushy narcissistic filmmaker persuades a Phoenix family to let him and his crew film their everyday lives in the manner of the groundbreaking PBS series American Family. However, instead of remaining unobtrusive and letting the family be themselves, he can't keep himself from trying to control every facet of their lives. Oh, I get it. That sounds good. That sounds good. That sounds really good. Should have led with that. (laughs) It is really, really hilarious. I mean, I don't think that there's 20 seconds to go in this movie that there's not a joke. Joke, 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 joke. And it's a lot of them are just really subtle. There's a scene about halfway so through So subtle you don't even notice them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's the best kind of joke. The one that's not is. even there. So there's a scene that starts about halfway through. The, and part of this is there's two scientists that live with Albert and watch the family as well. And one of them's a African-American scientist that Albert is just so uncomfortable with. And there's this scene what the, where... Why? Well, because this is his late 70s. I don't remember there being like... I don't remember the late 70s being that segregated. Well, he's in Phoenix. So that... that, so Phoenix, that was Phoenix the epicenter of the civil rights struggle in the late 70s? The African-American doctor doesn't like what 
Albert's doing. And so Albert gets really upset with him and says, well, I think you're just uncomfortable because, you know, we're in Phoenix and you may be the only black person here. And then he goes on this 45 second kind of rant about how he thinks black people are going to take over the earth and are super great. And then the scientist gets up and leaves and makes like a stereotypical black voice. Albert says, I find that insulting, Ted. I don't know. It's just, I'll, we'll do the clip. It's really funny. <laughs> or maybe not, it's not. Maybe let's, it's Let's not do the clip. <laughs> we'll put that right after the clip of the helmets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe you can throw a good Hitler thing in there, too. That's always really funny. It just it sounds like another scene you need to see. Yeah. This sounds nuts. <laughs> this movie sounds absolutely this movie nuts. nuts. This I, mean, movie I do want to really see crazy. it. I, really, I, know, I actually do think it sounds good now, and I would I want to see it a lot more. So than... there's this one scene that a lot of people... So this is, I think, just a judge... I love of, how Gibby, Gibby's segments keep going, there's this one scene? <laughs> yeah. This yeah. is like this other scene? <laughs> it's like okay. me describing a movie to my friends when I was yeah. in like... I'm like, Chris Farley. I'm like the Chris Farley character. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll get this real quick. It says, I think as a judge of how your comedy tastes, if you don't like this, you're not going to like this movie at all. Maybe not any Albert Brooks film. But there's this part where he gets happy because like, all right, now I can do a montage because the family had been depressed for a while and then they're happy again. So the montage <laughs> is five minutes of this goofy French song and then just showing the family doing the most mundane things in the world. It's uh, things like getting an ice cream clone or Charles Grodin blowing out a tiki torch or watching turtles at the zoo. I mean, it's five minutes of just these super mundane Giddy, things. This, feel, this, this segment feels like you got a book full, filled with sentences. <laughs> Put them in a bag, jumbled them up, shook them up, and just threw all the sentences out and just started reading them back to back to back. Is this really, a real movie? I don't really know how to explain. I just think it's hilarious. The Other job of this it. podcast is to explain the movies. No, the job is to argue about the movies, which it's we called, must first called, understand. It's not before called, we can argue about them. It's not called four friends explaining <laughs> movies. Anyway, real life is really funny. Yeah. Just watch it. I don't think this is the best film by far, but I think I'm not convinced this is a film at all. <laughs> It sounds like something the right type of comedy. You came up in some fever dream. Like at midnight, you woke up and was like, what if it was like a guy with a camera and there's like a family that's upset and it's like a black doctor and blah. Then a New York Times review says, this manner is deadpan and sly, so sly that some viewers may not find it comic at all. But for anyone well disposed towards Mr. Brooks, who is never without his absolute insincerity and irrational good cheer, real life is full of delightful nonsense. A very funny account of one man's crusade to capture all the truth and wisdom that money can buy. Lance, your number three. Three, Powell and Pressburger. All right. Peeping Tom, 1960. Where, where, as you typically start with a discussion of someone's career at the beginning, I'm going to start at the end with the last film of Michael Powell's career, the one horror film he made and the one that effectively ended his career. Why did you do that? What was that? Do I need to start that over you're now? you're trying to be all like, oh, I'm going to start at the end. It's going to be like, <laughs> make it interesting. Okay. If you're a fan of film, you know who Powell and Pressburger is. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Marty were hanging out one night talking about Powell and Pressburger. And the one that effectively ended his career, which I'll get to in a second. I hesitated starting with this because it's so unlike Powell's other films as it was the first time he tried his hand at horror. So if you hate horror films, don't let this turn you off to his work as literally none of his other movies go into this territory. Peeping Tom follows the story of Mark Lewis, a shy, awkward young man who works as a focus pooler in a British film studio. Mark has a secret. He is a serial killer who murders women and films their reaction as he kills them, all as part of an effort to make a documentary on fear. This obsession is rooted in the torment he endured as a child at the hands of his father, the scientist who can conducted experiments on fear using his now deranged son as a test subject. This movie, Jordan, I think you'll appreciate this, is a brilliant look at voyeurism, told through a twisted yet 
sympathetic character and it's effective because it doesn't let the viewer off the hook. We look right into the faces of people as they die, just as Mark does. This isn't the voyeurism of watching someone change clothes through a window across the street. It's inches away and it's right in your face. And this also explains the reaction to the film, for which Peeping Tom is probably the most famous. There's a really funny picture that's always held this kind of dark humor for me of Michael Powell at the premiere of Peeping Tom. He's all happy looking. It's it's about to start. He's about to walk in the theater. His career is going awesome. And he has no idea that in two hours his career will effectively be over. Uh, that's exactly what Peeping Tom did to him. It didn't just upset audiences. It turned them into an angry mob with pitchforks and torches chasing Powell out of Great Britain like Frankenstein. People went insane over this movie and it was pulled from British cinemas after only five days. Whoa. So why did that happen? Well, there are a couple reasons. First, it wasn't something Michael Powell would typically do, so people felt a little betrayed. Up to that point, he'd been the romantic comedy or heartfelt war movie director. Now he was doing this. It'd be kind of like walking into a Disney Disney movie and getting a David Fincher movie. Second, because it was so intimate. Psycho actually came out a few months later, and while it dealt with subject matter every bit as troubling, it actually helped Hitchcock's career because it kept the audience at a safe distance from the horror. Powell didn't pull the same punches. Uh, the film is now regarded as a classic, and it has since received the acclaim it deserves, and it's frequently mentioned on lists of greatest thriller or horror movies. Martin Scorsese has said that this and Fellini's Eight and a Half contain between them everything that can be said about directing. Eight and a Half is about the business side of, of the profession, whereas Peeping Tom deals with the voyeuristic side in which a director gives commands to his actors from the shadows and watches. I love this movie. Yeah, I, this is the only Powell and Pressburger film that I well, have no, seen. Well, no, this one is really. really? This yeah. is the only one you've seen. Yeah. This is Pressburgerless, right? This one actually this is Pressburgerless. This is the only Powell movie I've seen. There you go. Yeah, you you are right. I, that is important to point out because I did my selection was Powell and Pressburger. They were always a team up to this point, and they kind of split at this point. Um, so Powell did, did this one on his own. Lesson. I guess so. Gibby, that's really interesting. This is the only one you've seen because it, that it gives you a very probably twisted view on his work because all of the rest of his movies are so so different from this. Yeah, I thought this was fantastic. You liked it? I mean, it's scary and it's intense. Yeah, I thought it was a great movie. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. I'm a, I'm big in the slasher movies mm -hmm. so kind of the first the thing that kind of got that ball rolling yeah i mean watching it now you're kind of surprised that it created that big of a stir oh absolutely because it's fairly tame you know 2016 standards there's not gore or anything in it but it's unsettling i think that may be the best that's word for that's it. a great word to describe it this is not a gory film so if you have a weak stomach this isn't the movie that would turn you off for that reason but it gets in your head i mean it is very psychologically jarring i find this to be a very important part of his career even though he, it ended it because i think it really kind of flexed his muscles as a director the fact that it is so different from everything he did. We've talked about other directors, Rob Reiner, I think. I love this idea of a very eclectic director who can mm -hmm. hit a lot of different genres. I think Spielberg has proven himself to be that. And this just shows that he could go into a totally different genre and do something remarkable. So he did nothing else after this? He did a couple of movies, but they were either very low budget or they never really got any sort of press. He had a very hard time getting work in Great Britain after this film. That's just nuts. Jordan, number three, Rogue film. Performance. Filmed in 1968, but held by Warner Brothers until 1970. Warner Brothers didn't quite know what to do with it. Performance is a whirlwind of sex and violence and gender bending and psychedelic drugs and identity crises in 1960s swinging London. James Fox plays Chaz, a bloodthirsty gangster on the run from his mob boss after a wrongful hit. Chaz rents a basement room in the mansion of a reclusive and mysterious androgynous rock star named Turner, played by Mick Jagger. Turner and his lover, Ferber, that's P-H-E-R-B-R, <laughs> Ferber, played by Keith Richards, then girl friend Anita Pallenberg tricked Chaz into eating a ridiculous amount of psychedelic mushrooms and Chaz's reality is turned upside down calling into question who he is what he believes and what his future holds performance is the directorial
directorial debut of Nicholas Rogue, also handling the role of director of photography. The film is unmistakable in its early display of Rogue's style and substance, visually arresting and unpredictable. Shots that blend into each other through a narrative rabbit hole that's exciting and dense and complex and ultimately effective. The story is essentially composed of two halves, two sides of Swinging London that performance highlights by mirroring the two, wholly similar yet reversed. The first half is proto-Guy Ritchie British gangster movie. There's no way that Ritchie didn't borrow heavily from this part of performance in creating Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. It's violent and bloody and as manly as imaginable. Chaz walks out of that world and into a bohemian hot mess like he's never experienced. Roughly halfway through the film, while tripping on the aforementioned mushrooms, Ferber and Chaz are in bed. She's put a wig and a necklace and makeup on him. She grabs a small mirror and puts it on Chaz's chest. It reflects her own breast onto him and she asks him, Do you never have a female feel? No, never. I feel like a man. A man all the time. She then holds the mirror over half of his face so that it reflects hers. That's awful. That's what's wrong with you, isn't it? What do you mean? It's a man's man's world. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm normal. (laughs) She then covers her own face with the mirror so that Chaz sees his own face on her head and body. What do you think Turner feels like, huh? I don't know, he's weird. And you're weird. You're kinky. He's a man, male and female man. How come we don't make fun of Jordan for for <laughs> for saying, oh, hey, you know, you we can... know what medium this is, Jordan? This is one that you listen to. Mm-hmm. What? So I, I can, you uh, can make fun of Jordan right now. Make fun I'm of I'm incredibly confused and don't <laughs> I'm know what thoroughly this confused is. what we're talking about. <laughs> but keep going. Let's keep this crazy train rolling. Yeah. yeah. Are it's, you guys it's... happy that you chose obscure directors now? Yes. I don't know yet. We haven't gotten uh, to mine yet. Yours <laughs> isn't obscure. Features. Mine's going to be a release when we get to it. Everybody's just Jordan, like, where, where's all this headed? Towards the end of this 12 page essay. <laughs> the reason I'm I'm going into this is I'd love to hear this. Is because I think that this movie has a really interesting structure that it's split into two parts. What I'm describing right now is the middle part of the movie. Uh, the mirror, if you will. Yes, exactly. All right, let's go. Let me continue. <laughs> no, I mean let's go home. I think oh, we're done no, with this. Oh, okay. Let's go to the next. <laughs> totally fine. Totally fine. No, because they're all like this. This scene so effectively challenges identity and definition, and it ushers in the proto Rocky horror of the second half of the film. We are no longer sure which characters are. We're which. only half way through right now, right? I'm not going to describe the rest of the movie. I'm not Hudson. I don't want to give every single point of the movie away. That's a good point, Hudson. Three times last week, and that's <laughs> all. Did it once that's to eight all. movies at the same time. <laughs> uh, we are no longer sure which characters are which or how they identify. Chaz steps further and further into murky, muddy water until his gangster past catches up with him and he's forced to make a move. Rogue's visual direction is so striking. I'm not sure how well this movie would work without his unique approach. It's, it's one of those movies that rearranges your brain and seemingly reverses the direction of your blood flow for a time after the movie ends. You know what that feeling when you walk out of a movie and you want to like kick stuff? Yeah, I've got it right now. <laughs> Weird. Did you just watch a movie? Oh, it was just me describing it that made you feel like you watched a movie. Yeah, yeah I, I definitely feel like I've watched a movie. It's We're almost there time-wise, too. <laughs> it provides such an exhilarating and inspiring and provocative result in a debut film, which is so rare and remarkable. Uh, performance was supposed to be like a hard day's night for Mick Jagger. Yeah, I remember reading that. That is definitely not what Rogue turned in to Warner Brothers, instead delivering a challenging and complex film that I imagine spun the studio heads' heads clean off. One interesting thing I read about this movie is what a disaster
disaster the test screening was. Yeah. You mentioned the fact that it sat on a shelf for two years. The reason was because they did a test screening. A Warner Brothers executive's wife vomited at the <laughs> opening. After that, it sat in editing for two years, I guess until people didn't vomit when they watched it. There was a lot of editing experimentation, certainly, that went on in the 60s. I think this one... I mean, I don't think anybody other than those people have seen the original cut of the film. I think the one that was released But there were a lot later. of films like that in that time period. Yeah. Was it just because people were expecting more because it was like Mick Jagger's and he was a big deal? I think then? people were expecting a super like fluffy, you know, simple like here's some rock yeah. songs kind of thing. It and it's they not got that at all. Two halves and a mirror and a girl's <laughs> breast. It's super yeah. violent. Is it one of those movies you watch too where you can just feel the drugs on set? Oh, yeah. Like everybody's all like thin and veins are popping out everywhere. Everybody well, just looks like disgusting. They didn't really highlight those things necessarily, but you do see people doing drugs and you see a lot of people having sex. So performance, check it out. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, listen up. After those atrocities, <laughs> I'm here to wrap you in a nice warm blanket, cuddle up on the couch. We're going to be talking about The Breakfast Club, 1985 film by John Hughes. Number one on Entertainment Weekly's 50 Best High School Movies, and it's pretty inarguably uh, the best high school movie ever made. Well I, can, I can vouch for Entertainment Weekly. I thought you could only vouch for Us Weekly. No, Us Weekly is just a joke. Entertainment Weekly, I've literally been a subscriber for 22 years. Us wow. Weekly Update. Yeah. Wow. Gold issues now. Yeah. Next up, Gibby shows us Emilio Estevez's new facelift. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. So Breakfast Club was released in 1985, but it wasn't a major part in my life until middle school. The story takes place over one day in the lives of five teenagers as they experience Saturday detention, which always was weird to me because we never had Saturday. I never even heard of that. Yeah, it doesn't seem like legal. It's <laughs> <laughs> crazy. Yeah. And each character is clearly defined archetypes of high school. You got Brian, the brain struggling with his one failing grade. Andrew, the athlete, trying to impress his dad. Allison, the basket case kleptomaniac. Claire, the princess, who no one expects to be in detention. And Bender, the criminal who everyone expects him to be. But but hang on, it's important to point out here that these are not caricatures, really. Correct. They're not over the top. Like, if you watch, like, an episode of Saved by the Bell, the nerd is always, like, so over the top and ridiculous. Like, these are very three-dimensional characters. Multifaceted. The thing That's that makes... a weird pronunciation of that. <laughs> no, they have multifacets. facets <laughs> Oh. <laughs> The thing that makes Breakfast Club so genius and really the entire point of it is that when the movie starts, the characters are these kind of stereotypes. They're so easily definable, but by the end, you find that you can relate to every single one of them in some way. Brian, in his essay at the end of the film, says, Dear Mr. Vernon, we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention for whatever it was we did wrong, but we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think we are, and you see us as you want to see us. In the simplest terms, the most convenient definitions but what we found out is that each one of us is a brain and an athlete and a basket case a princess and a criminal does that answer your question sincerely yours the breakfast club they start out minding their own business, but as the movie continues on, they strip away their layers, literally and figuratively, and the movie does what movies do so well. It reflects honest characters, having honest conversations, dealing with honest situations. And as a teenager watching this for the first time, I could feel my own anxieties melt away as I knew what teenagers so longed to know, which is that I was no longer alone. The movie is very funny, very quotable, and has an improvised feel. A lot of that had to do with the ways Hughes shot it, thanks to the practical set, which they built in a high school gymnasium. They rehearsed on the actual set leading up to it and shot the movie in sequence. I still find myself quoting a lot of the lines pretty regularly. Uh, he does. Does Barry Manilow know that you raid his wardrobe? Don't mess with the bull, young man. You'll get the horns. Two hits. 
Me hitting you, you hitting the floor. Anytime you're ready, pal. That's all right, son. You can do it on the boat. Hey, how come Andrew gets to get up? That's right. If he gets up, we'll all get up. It'll be anarchy. I'm not sure there's a more quotable script. Known for being a very fast and very prolific writer, Hughes wrote the script in just over two days. All of Hughes' films take place in Shermer, Illinois, creating an unofficial shared universe. He said before that Steve Martin from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles lives in the same neighborhood as Molly Ringwald from 16 Candles. The Breakfast Club kids went to school with Ferris Bueller, and Kevin Bacon is said to be playing his character from She's Having a Baby in the opening cab-chasing scene of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Hmm. But I guess that means in this town there are a number of high high school kids that look like Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall. Doesn't sound that bad. Uh, you introduced me to this movie when we were younger and this film means a lot to me personally just because it, it kind of taught me about what a movie can be that you don't have to have a $200 million budget and tons of special effects. All you needed is a room and a great script and this is definitely one of the greatest scripts ever written. It deals with an issue that we don't have to deal with as much now that we're adults in terms of you know popularity, social standing but there's still things that you think about and can relate to for some reason and this movie has never really stopped resonating with me just because I'm not in high school and I think that's because even when you're out of of high school, you're still dealing with class systems and rich versus poor and cool people versus outcasts. You see it even if it's not something you struggle with. I always wanted to know what happened the next Monday. Did they stick together? Did they not? And I always wondered if John Hughes had it in his head what really happened. I can't remember what I've read if it's from the actors or it's from him. And I think there's differing viewpoints on it, but the kind of definitive thing was they just went back to their normal lives. That's what yeah, I would think. And because Hughes, Hughes was such a realist in so many ways, and I think realistically that probably is what would have happened. Right. Yeah. They actually talk depressing. about it in the movie, don't they? Like what's going to happen? They Monday. do, yeah, yeah. That's one of the best conversations in the movie, yeah. where they're dealing with the reality because they, they're they're not clueless or blind to that. They understand that there's a social structure that they have to fit in, and they understand that that's what they're going to be up against 48 hours later when they're back in school. I am pretty sure that I've only seen the TV version of this movie, including up to a year that ago. Seems when to be I a lot it of again. movies. What is that, Gabe? Gabe, your number two Albert Brooks film. So my second choice for Albert Brooks is actually his third film that he wrote, directed, and starred in, called Lost in America. In my opinion. 1984 comedy masterpiece. I, I'm not it's your opinion. To, it's your opinion that it was made in 1984? Four stars by Rebert. So in, in Lost in America, Albert Brooks plays David Howard, a successful ad man making $100,000 a year, wow. living in LA with a happy marriage. His it's almost going, as much money as this movie made. <laughs> <laughs> His career is going so well that he has a meeting with the boss the next day. He's so sure he's going to be promoted to VP of the agency that he decides to splurge a little and is in discussion to buy a Mercedes. There's a really funny conversation between him and the Mercedes dealer. It's a lot of money for a car, isn't it? It's not a car, Mr. Howard. It's a Mercedes, and that's the difference. No, I know it's a Mercedes, but it's just still a lot of money. Well, maybe you shouldn't buy the car then. Get a Nova. Okay. Okay. Now, there's no extras, right? That's it? That's everything? I don't imagine at that price I'd have to add. No, just leather. That's all you'd have to add. Nothing else. Really? Yeah. It doesn't come with leather. No, sir, it does not. That's why I told you you'd have to add it. That's pretty funny stuff. <laughs> yeah. Sign me it's, up for this one. It's all subtle. Like, it's, it's humor subtle. Anyway, when his meeting I, the next again, day... <laughs> we have very definitions of subtle, because what you're describing as subtle, I describe as absent. <laughs> You're going to be absent from my life as a friend if you keep being mean to me. When his meeting the next day doesn't go as planned, when he's offered a lateral move to New York City instead of the VP job with the same pay, he quits in an epic fit of rage. Do you know that I spent the week calling my friends, asking them if they thought I'd get this? And all of them told me I was the best man. Everyone said, don't worry. Everyone. Nobody would listen to me when I said, I don't think so. They all said, you're the best man. Obviously, they're right. I'm the best man. Phil Shabano's the groom. There I am, standing next to Phil, watching his life come true. 
So David immediately leaves from here to go to his wife, Linda, and she's played by the very underrated Julie Haggerty, who is in two fantastic 80s comedies, This and Airplane. Convinces her to quit her job as well, and that after they liquidate their house and all their assets, they have enough to live off the land for the rest of their lives. So they decide to buy a Winnebago and just hit the road. Brooks' character, David, keeps referencing Easy Rider throughout the first half of the movie. He's like, I want to be like that. I just want to live free, live without responsibility, and just see the land. Because that, that ended really well yeah. in Easy Rider. Well, I think... <laughs> Part of this movie is he doesn't. You know, he didn't. He only saw the first thirty minutes because his wife didn't turn it off. Right. He doesn't get that part of Easy Rider. He only sees the fun and he doesn't see the. That's the first thing you've said that was kind of funny about this. You may have just like woken something that maybe goes, okay, this could be okay. <laughs> so things immediately go wrong as they leave, and the film just gets funnier and funnier as their dream of an unresponsible life spirals out of control. Uh, one of their first stops within, I think, a twenty-four hours or forty-eight hours of leaving LA is at a casino in Las Vegas, and there's a hilarious five to ten minutes where he's resting in the room and his wife is down at the casino and she's gambling and gambling and gambling and he wakes up in the morning doesn't know where she is so he walks into the casino in a bathrobe and uh, <laughs> sorry is this more subtle humor <laughs> yeah so he finds her at a craps table or one of those tables with a spinny thing roulette, roulette. yeah roulette. doing some gambling anyway so the casino manager comes down and asks to speak to them after she loses all her chips. And he thinks it's just a little bit of money. He finds out that she has lost literally all of the money that they own. His uh, nest, egg. nest egg. Yeah. So if you've heard of the nest egg scene, no, there's a very famous a scene. There's a very famous scene in this movie. <laughs> oh, you've heard of that. You've yeah. heard of a nest, heard of a nest egg. Oh, just me and you, I guess. <laughs> so, so Albert Brooks' character keeps referencing the nest egg. And there's a very funny scene in the movie where he meets with the casino manager uh, played by Gary Marshall. Gary Marshall. Can you do a Gary Marshall impression? No, just don't pull me into this. So anyway, there's a scene between him and the casino manager that is just incredible, where Albert just begs him to give him their money back. As the boldest experiment in advertising history, you give us our money back. I beg your pardon? Give us our money back. Think of the publicity. And of course, he can't give the money back. Hang on a second. I want to make sure I'm understanding what just happened. That was the scene. The whole, like, so from the moment he woke up, walked downstairs in a bathrobe, found her at the craps table, and he argues with the, and that's, that's like the pinnacle scene in the movie, comedy-wise. All right, you guys can make fun of this if you want, but Lost in America has a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, and... But it's not hard when only four people on. have seen it. <laughs> AFI's 100 Years, 100 Laughs, it's at number 84. Yeah, wow. it's very funny. Um, and it made $10 million. Wow. Can, can I give you that's a piece of advice for the rest of your segment? Don't review any of the scenes or what they say, because I don't feel like that's working well. Okay. <laughs> Do you learn something at the end of the film, or is it like you're just watching this idiot make bad decisions over and over again? That's kind of like you watch this idiot make bad decisions So it's Curb Your Enthusiasm, over. sort it's, of. It's very, very Larry David. Uh, I think one of the reasons I think that this film works so well, especially for me, uh, is it gets right to this relative comfort that we all have in our own lives. Lives, certainly like in the corporate world or the business world like you and I where we say we want to be free we want to do uh, you know uh, creative things we'd be great at that but then when you actually get out there and do it and be spontaneous the reality of life is this is not what we thought it would be because like, deliverance yeah we can't <laughs> like <laughs> we couldn't live like Jordan you know right, what I mean right. I don't mean that negatively Jordan but no how, like I, I didn't think you could live like me either. yeah I hardly live like me yeah <laughs> so there's a bunch of people that hmm. think this is hmm. that, like the easy rider life would be great and perfect, but in reality, yeah. it's not something we can it's actually live with. They actually filmed most of this movie actually all across America, and it shows a I've shot of the big green peach. <laughs> anyway, the big the green, famous, the famous, famous big, big green peach. peach, the big George Peach. <laughs> that's in Gaffney, peach? South Carolina. What? Yeah, that's what I put. Yeah, what? It's in, not uh, in Georgia. Also, it has a George Peach in it, even though that peach is actually in Gaffney, South Carolina. But they pretend like it's Georgia. It's not like, green. Welcome to Georgia. It's not green. It's not in Georgia. Yeah. It's actually it's just peach. A peach. The color is peach, right? But it's green. The object is. Why is it green? 
I, I misspoke. I think you ran into Big Green Giant yeah. when you were trying to say Big Green Peach. Yeah. The Big right. Green Giant was in it. All right, Lance, number two, Paul and Pressburger movie. This one, Pressburgy. Yes, this one is Pressburgerful. <laughs> I Know Where I'm Going, 1945. If you were to list the genres of movies and the orders which I like them, romantic comedies would be dead last. I loathe them. And a big part of the reason is because they're so redundant and poorly done. It's also because they're so predictable. I know the ending of the movie before the opening credits roll, and I just rarely so, see you know, it. Where it's going. <laughs> well oh, played. Nice. <laughs> I just rarely see a good one. Well, this, my friends, is a great one. Uh, Martin Scorsese, who comes up once again, your buddy, made the statement. I reached the point of thinking there were no more masterpieces to discover until I saw I Know Where I'm Going. High praise. It follows the story of Joan Webster, played by Wendy Hiller, a headstrong woman from a middle class background who is determined to shake off her modest upbringing to have the finer things in life, which she plans on accomplishing by marrying a wealthy middle aged industrialist who she does not love at all. Her future husband lives on an island, and en route to go meet him, she gets trapped in a port town due to terrible weather that prevents any boats from getting to said island. During that time, she meets Torquil McNeil, played by I'm the... Sorry, w- I'm sorry, say that again? Torquil? Torquil. <laughs> yeah. How do you spell Torquil? T-O-R-Q-U-I-L. Great name. Wow. Yeah, I know, and I really hope I'm pronouncing it right. Played by the wonderful Roger Livesey. He's so good. He's awesome. A Navy man who is on leave and is also trapped. As they spend time together and get to know one another, they fall in love, a fact that Joan stubbornly fights as she attempts to march on toward her loveless, convenient marriage. This is a movie about a decision many of us have to make in life between practicality and happiness, between that job that we know would pay the bills and the one that pays less but would give us pleasure. Between the relationship with the person who feels safe rather than risking finding someone who lights a fire in us. It's a theme that that resonates with me personally as it's a decision I've made and regretted over and over again. What this movie does is demonstrates an important principle on how to please an audience because oftentimes filmmakers themselves are faced with a choice. Either give the audience what they want, which is boring, or don't give the audience what they want, which can be unsatisfying. And that's why this movie works for me when so many other romantic comedies don't because it finds an important middle ground that few movies do, which is this. It gives the audience what they want, but in a way they didn't expect to get it. Those are the best films, I think, because they're satisfying, but they're not boring. We know these two people will end up together. They have to. And the device that they use comes in the form of a curse that is tied to a local castle. Why Torquil and Joan, or I love saying Torquil, it's like my favorite word. Why Torquil and Joan are spending time together waiting for the weather to clear, they tour the local countryside and come across a castle called Moy Castle that was owned by ancestors of Torquil's. The idea is that Torquil's great-great-great-grandfather, or whatever, had stormed this castle centuries earlier to capture his unfaithful wife and her lover. He bound them together and cast them into a water-filled dungeon where they drowned, but not before his wife put a curse on the castle that any descendant of her husband who stepped over the threshold into the castle would be chained to a woman to the end of his days. Torquil still believes in the curse and refuses to enter. Later at the end of the movie, Joan says goodbye to him. He goes to the castle, but this time he enters and the curse takes effect immediately. He steps over the threshold and looks out to see Joan coming back, the woman he'll be chained to until the end of his days, and they embrace. It would have been so easy to end this movie in such a lazy way where she just runs up and tells him she made a mistake and instead they do it up against this really clever device that actually seems very sinister when it's first introduced and it turned into something we didn't expect and to me it's what makes this movie stand out it's one of those rare examples where the filmmakers cared enough about their craft to make a movie that gave me what i want in a way that i didn't expect to get it and i'm always so appreciative when a film does that it goes that extra mile to make itself stand out and i i know where i'm going falls into that category sounds fantastic isn't the actual pronunciation i know where i'm going well it does have an exclamation point at the end of it so every time i read it it looks really (laughs) weird
weird. It is excellent. I really enjoyed this one as well. Falling into the exploring Paul and Pressburger movies. Drew Lance turned me on to him. And, um, and sort of a, oh my God, there's another rom-com? Yeah, well, I like romantic comedies and it's got kind of a fantasy element with the curse. And so I think, was this the first one I recommended to you? Because I know I that you remember. like rom-coms and so I thought you might kind of connect with this. That makes me sound super lame. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. No, I mean, you have more of a bent towards those types of movies. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, he wanted to turn you on towards it. <laughs> Torquil. All right, Jordan, your number two rogue movie. The Man Who Fell to Earth from 1976, Rogue's fourth film, continues something he began with performance, casting a rock star as one of the lead actors, this time David Bowie. Bowie had done some minimal acting before taking this role, but nothing even close to this. Bowie plays Thomas Jerome Newton, a humanoid alien on a mission to bring water back to his home planet in an attempt to save his wife and children from drought. His plan involves a series of inventions and ideas he's brought to Earth, which quickly make him an insanely successful tech giant. When he meets an adorable young woman, Mary Lou, played by Candy Clark, his mission is compromised as she introduces him to the human experience. He recruits the help of a rather promiscuous scientist, Dr. Nathan Bryce, played by the man with the greatest name in all of film history, Rip Torn. Hmm. You guys don't agree with that? I was going to say Jorg, but Garrett. Oh, well, yeah, that's a good one, too. Newton and Mary Lou spiral into severe alcoholism and Newton's chances of making it home to his family are called into question. Like Rogue's other films, this one is absolutely mesmerizing visually, creating a wholly unique experience. Another strength of Rogue's is his ability to capture intimacy. This isn't some clean, lovey-dovey intimacy. It's dirty and jagged and real and beautiful. As shocking and grotesque as moments in his previous films were, Rogue really begins to embrace his fearlessness on screen in The Man Who Fell to Earth. Newton decides to shed his humanness and show Mary Lou the alien that he is in one of the most insane and visually fascinating scenes of all time. And we watch as she stands petrified and urinates herself. Some, I'm sure, would call this scene gratuitous, that we actually see her fearful urination. But I believe this to be... Where are we going here? <laughs> I kind of giggled when I wrote <laughs> Fearful Urination. But I believe this to be much of the power behind Rogue's films. He's unafraid to show us what nearly everyone else is afraid to. And it makes us be a little more empathetic to how Mary Lou is feeling when first taking in the sight of the alien. And it's at this point that we watch her shift. She accepts him and she strips herself and she lays down next to him, which begins one of the most radical, mind-boggling, and crazy sex scenes in film history. There's so much vulnerability, so much pain and love and all these feelings swirling around and it ends with Mary Lou completely unable to handle the truth of the situation as she runs away leaving us nearly as sad as she is few movies have the ability to take the audience on an emotional ride during a sex sign other than yeah hubba hubba but Rogue is a master of this more on that later <laughs> later? <laughs> oh man in this in this same movie? no in, okay. in the next movie uh, so, you're making this movie sound like a string of just weird sex scenes yeah. well so, you've seen Rogue movies they I have they, and I've seen this one but I don't seen, that's not what I really any took sex from in it Rogue Nation no there wasn't the first hour of this movie is the weakest part. When I watch this movie, I generally find myself asking what I love about it during the first hour. That maybe it's some nostalgia or Bowie love or something that makes me appreciate this movie. But once we turn the corner on hour one, it becomes an incredibly engrossing and wholly individual movie of which I've never seen anything. I think the first hour of this podcast was the weakest part. Mm, Here's five keywords for a man who fell to earth. Sex scene, female nudity, female frontal nudity, (laughs) alien, urinating in fear. (laughs) I think that Bowie is really good in this movie. He claims that he was really 
just learning lines and very much injecting his current self into the role. Real thin, sickly, and very much addicted to cocaine. Uh, apparently, he was consuming 10 grams of cocaine a day. I just assume he did that every day of his life. No, he it was just the, about the, the latter 80s. health of the 70s. There's this, there's this quote from him I really liked about this. I'm so pleased I made that movie, but I didn't really know what was being made at all. I just learned the lines for that day and did them the way I was feeling. I like to imagine he just showed up at the premiere and had no idea what the movie was about, <laughs> even though he was the star. Like I, think he, I think he probably didn't. I mean, he doesn't remember making Station to Station, which he made uh, uh, a year uh, after this. David Bowie isn't really a very natural actor and he hadn't done much before this but the reason Rogue picked him was exactly because of that because Newton is an alien pretending to be human in which case an inexperienced actor is kind of perfect for the role. So I saw this movie because I was like oh sweet alien movie is going to be like Cocoon and it was not. <laughs> no it's nothing like Cocoon. It's nothing. Th this movie splits a lot of audiences and there are people that think it's the, the greatest sci-fi movie ever and then there's Hudson. I'll give it <laughs> and people like him. Yeah I saw this movie weird yet fantastic. Yeah, I, th I thought it was thought it was wonderful but i i totally understand hudson your point of view because i know a lot of people so i can understand why somebody watched this and be like what the hell is this it's not my favorite rogue movie but mm. i do love this movie it's so weird i always thought it was odd they cast david bowie and then i looked at the other actors they were considering this is great robert redford peter <laughs> o'toole james mason and after reading that list i was like nope bowie was perfect <laughs> there's there's another one do it. there's another one michael crichton what, what? yeah the because he was it? so tall crichton was a tall fella at its core <laughs> the man who fell to earth is a fish out of water story about what is happening to us as humans by humans. At the end, years later, Dr. Bryce meets back up with Newton and asks him if he's bitter about the whole thing, how nothing worked according to his plan. Newton responds, of course not. We'd have probably treated you the same if you'd come over to our place. It's a powerful condemnation of our culture or maybe just life itself. Destructive and hopeless, but not without its joys and pleasures. Maybe just enough to not be bitter to make the best of it instead. Alright guys, I'm back. We can <laughs> relax and have fun again because we're talking about the John Hughes film from 1986, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Although certainly not a departure for Hughes, it does feel a different kind of film from the previous year's Breakfast Club. Gone are the realistic portrayals of teenagers, and in their place, we have Ferris Bueller, Sloane Peterson, and Cameron Fry, who are essentially the guy you want to be, the girl you want to date, and the best friend you want to have. These three best friends spend the day skipping school, Ferris attempting to inspire Cameron while trying to avoid their overly motivated principal from busting Ferris. If he does, he'll be expelled. But Ferris is always one step ahead of him and all the adults in their lives. It's the ultimate teen fantasy movie where the teenagers are always smarter than the adults, a running theme in Hughes movies. On their day off, they visit Sears Tower, the Chicago Stock Exchange, Wrigley Field, an art museum, a fancy restaurant. They perform in a parade and magically make it back home before their parents. I've always wanted to do the Ferris Bueller tour of Chicago and see all these sites. Hughes wrote the first draft in just six days. He said, I had the idea on a Monday and the following Tuesday it was in budget at Paramount. What took him so long? <laughs> I don't I, can I point out how incredible that is? Yeah. I, I don't it, I, I think that's a hard thing for a lot of people to understand because I don't I mean most people haven't written scripts, but it takes months to write a script. Yeah. He and you said he did this one in six days. He did Breakfast Club. Again, one of the greatest scripts ever written in two days. Forty eight hours. I imagine hours. he might have rewritten it some, but honestly, I mean who knows? He's such a talent. Ferris is usually the one most quoted, but Cameron has my favorite lines in this movie. When Cameron was in Egypt's land Let my Cameron go He'll keep calling me He'll keep calling me until I come over He'll make me feel guilty This is, this is ridiculous, okay? I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go with, I'll go Well, I think you should be sorry for Christ's sake A family member dies and you insult me What the hell is the matter with you anyway? 
Every actor is so perfect and brilliant in this, and it's just so much fun. It doesn't have a lot heftier things to say, except for the line, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. Which feels like it's something adults could learn from most teenagers. And like all of Hugh's movies, it ends with a great heartwarming scene for Cameron, who ends up being the real protagonist of the film, as he's the one with the real change at the end of the day. Ben Stein, who also had a small but iconic part in the film, said, This is to comedies what Gone with the Wind is to epics. It will never die because it responds to and calls forth such human emotions. It isn't dirty. There's nothing mean-spirited about it. There's nothing sneering or sniggering about it. It's just wholesome. We want to be free. We want to have a good time. We know we're not going to be able to all our lives. We know we're going to have to buckle down and work. We know we're going to have to eventually become family men and women and have responsibilities and pay our bills, but just give us a couple of good days that we can look back on. And ultimately, that's what the film is about, taking a moment to enjoy the little things. Romance, friendship, baseball, art, food, music, and cars. Wonderful movie. This 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 movie uses a classic Hughes trick where he pulls you in with this really like silly premise and then it turns into this incredibly heartfelt story of these three friends. And what's odd, and this is what you pointed out a second ago, is that rather than Ferris, Cameron becomes the emotional center of the, of the entire movie. And without him, this is kind of just a crazy 80s teen movie that's probably, I don't know about forgotten, but definitely not, it doesn't achieve the level of, you know, belovedness that it, that it, is, it is since attained. But Cameron helps separate that. Have, have you ever heard that fan theory that Sloan and Ferris are just figments of Cameron's imagination. No, that's yeah. funny. Yeah, there's this fan theory you see online that, that he actually, Cameron lived this whole day himself and created these characters in his mind so he could finally gain the strength to live his life and stand up to his father. And it's I've, I've rewatched the movie through that scope and it's a very different yet interesting awesome. movie still. I don't think that was Hugh's intention, but right. it's kind of a fun take on it. Gibby, this is your chance. Sell us on Albert Brooks. <laughs> My favorite film of Albert Brooks is Defending Your Life. This is the 1991 comedy about life and the afterlife, starring Albert Brooks and an incredible Meryl Streep. In it, Brooks plays Daniel Miller, a divorced, somewhat unhappy executive who has just bought a brand new BMW because it's expensive to reward himself. And then he immediately gets in a wreck and dies. Why did he get rid of the Mercedes that yeah, he had before? This seems like a crossover to the last movie where he got a Mercedes. Yeah, there's a lot of jokes in Albert Brooks movies about perception and like what people perceive. I thought, you, about to, I thought you about to say he. there's a lot of jokes he just uses over and over and <laughs> yeah. over again. That's he, what this a little bit. I mean, it's it's all pretty funny. Uh, there's a conversation. Does, doesn't sound funny. <laughs> so anyway, after he gets in a wreck, he dies within the first seven minutes of the movie. From there, he wakes up in Judgment City, which is kind of a first stop in your afterlife. It's set up like an office park with big buildings, nice hotels, trams that take you everywhere. He finds out soon enough that in Judgment City, you are there to, quote unquote, defend your life. Every person is assigned a lawyer to defend you and a prosecuting attorney and then judge over your case. You watch a number of days in your life to see if you lived a life worthy to move on to the next portion, which is basically heaven? Or would you be sent back to earth to, to improve upon yourself? So some people have as little as three days. Those are the good people. If you give two or three days to watch in your life, then you're fine. You're going to move on. And then some, the most they've ever had is 15. Albert's character has nine days, so he gets all neurotic about that. Erotic about that. Wait, he has nine days to prove it? No, you have four days in court, but they, they show clips. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't I explain can't, it Hang well. on. I can't figure out the rules of this movie already. <laughs> I mean, no, Hudson, it works on a three-tier system. The first tier has four days. The second tier has five days, unless there's an exception where there's a loophole where you get a third day if you successfully live your fourth day. Doesn't any of this make sense? They explain it well in the movie, and we will play that clip right now. Is it a 20-minute like explanation where they go through all the rules? No, it's like 30 seconds. It's like a seconds. lawyer reading it's it to you. It's a heck of a lot better than me trying to explain it. Uh, long and short of it is they have four it's days. long of it. The four days, a four-day <laughs> trial where they watch certain days of their life, and they pick days where they either did something good or something bad. 
bad. And you just watch those clips during this. Day. This feels like the first time like my uncle tried to explain chess to me. <laughs> <laughs> what, what the, rook, the rook does what? So anyway, Albert Brooks' character is really concerned about nine days. He actually goes to eat after his first day in court or hears that he has nine days and they ask everybody is that a lot. And it's just uh, it's a funny scene. So in between these court scenes, the recently departed are allowed to enjoy the city. You can eat all you want and gain no weight. There's no calories or anything and it's the best food you've ever had in your life. One night when he's out in the city, he meets Meryl Streep's character who has also just recently departed and they hit it off. The rest of the movie goes between his time in court and their burgeoning relationship. Julia, Muriel Stripes' character, only has four days. Muriel Stripe. <laughs> she was in Gremlins, Meryl Stripe. Meryl Striper. Yeah, Meryl Striper. <laughs> <laughs> Meryl Streep's character only has four days because she lived a great life. So the court scenes in this movie, I think, are fantastic. The defendant sits in a chair in the middle of a large room in front of a giant screen. On the left is the defending attorney, on the right is prosecuting, and the judges are behind them. The first clip... Hold on, I, I'm not done drawing that yet. Yeah, can you take about 10 minutes and talk again about <laughs> the spatial layout of where everybody is? So the chair is about uh, three feet <laughs> wide. It's a rotating Stop. chair. You can t- okay, are you guys ready for an awesome factoid? <laughs> yeah. Albert Brooks' brother is Super Dave Osborne. No! Yeah. yeah. If you crazy? hear them talk, they oh sound gosh. a lot alike. They who's, do, now that I think about it. Who's Super Dave Osborne? Who's Super Dave Osborne? Oh, man. This guy's... You know him. Yeah, you got to I did grow up in the 80s. I just didn't have a television. In the early oh. 80s, he was basically a quote-unquote comedy daredevil. So he would pretend to do... Lot. Yeah, he'd pretend to do these crazy stunts, and he would always back out at the last second, or <laughs> he'd put a dummy in a cannon, and a dummy would go flying out, and then he'd jump up. And okay. like, oh. He's also yeah, third season funny. Arrested Development. He played the... the surrogate. The surrogate yeah. guy. I think he's in a lot of... He's in a lot of... enthusiasm. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, so they're brothers. You got to Talks like this. Yeah. He's got this kind of voice. <laughs> anyway, there's the what I really like about this movie. The court scenes are hilarious. He sits in the middle, and so they turn around to watch. Imagine this. I mean, being in there with other people watching days of your life, often the worst days of your life. Uh, so the first scene that they show, the first clip they decide to show, is where he turns around, and it's him in elementary school getting beat up on the playground. He didn't do anything to retaliate or fight back. And what's so funny is he slowly turns the chair around and he watches it, and then the scene's over. He's been humiliated in front of these four people that he barely knows. Then the chair slowly slivels around, and it's just—I mean—it's just a great visual gag, which we don't have, but because this is not a medium uh, where you see things. That sounds pretty charitable to say that's funny. Yeah. Chair. I see what you charitable. did. Jordan. You actually yeah. did something worse than what you just described. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it's this humiliating part. And you have to watch it with other people. I think my favorite part of this podcast so far is when Gibby tries to describe scenes from these movies. <laughs> it's like it's like oh, where he is this going? He went on a seven-minute scene about a mirror. <laughs> Sorry, At least Jordan. that wasn't supposed to be funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah it wasn't supposed to be. <laughs> Let me talk to the theme of this movie, fear. So immediately after that, they talk about why were you afraid to fight back? And so every day of Brooks's character life is where he was afraid to do something. And why are we as humans here on Earth afraid to go for the things we really want in life? Why are we afraid to be who we want to be and what holds us back? And so I think this movie really delves headlong into that. Wait, the point is that he should have fought back? He should have fought back. Each scene is him doing something that if he weren't a timid, scared person, he would have become mm-hmm. a better person mm-hmm. because of it. That's a that's a great principle. I, that feels like an odd situation in which to apply it. What happened to Blessed or the Meat fighting? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I don't I don't know if this is his funniest movie. It's theologically accurate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think in a way it is. I think you know fears get a lot of us. That's Jordan's inside out emotion. Clearly, you and I serve a different God. So why, uh, <laughs> why are we afraid of things that we shouldn't be afraid of? And in the, the example I gave, mm-hmm. the example I gave there isn't a great example. There's another scene that they watch later in his Please life tell where, me about it. where he goes to talk to his boss about getting a raise about or no taking a new job and the amount the least amount of money he says the night before he has a role play with his wife how much are you offering me fifty five thousand dollars i can't work here for a penny under 65 i'm sorry 
Well, I can't pay you sixty-five. Then I can't work here. Fifty-eight thousand. Sixty-five. Fifty-nine. Sixty-five. Sixty. Sixty-five. Sixty-one. Let me make it plain. I cannot take the job for under sixty-five under no conditions. Your Honors, I would like to go directly to the next afternoon and show you the real encounter. Danielle, I'm prepared to offer you forty-nine thousand dollars. I'll take it. It's Dude, about- that is f***ing hilarious. That's going to get beeped <laughs> out. So anyway, Defending Your Life. I don't think this is his funniest movie, but I've watched this film multiple times with a bunch of different people, and everybody I've seen it with has really liked it. So this is a great film, I think. Lance, number one, Powell and Pressburger. Oh, here we go. 49th Parallel, the 1941 film. This is one of those movies that when it ended left to me asking the question, why did it take so long for me to find out about this movie? And this is a common question I find myself asking after virtually all the Powell and Pressburger films. It follows the story of a German World War II submarine crew that gets bombed and stranded in Canada. And if this sounds odd to you, it is true that German subs were often roaming the waters around North America. The Nazis actually sank ships in the New York Harbor, which I don't think a lot of people are aware of. Did you guys know that? I did, mainly because I watched this movie with you and you told me that. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, if the crew gets captured in Canada, they will be imprisoned because Canada has already entered the Second World War. So they begin a journey toward the border of the still neutral United States. That's what the 49th parallel references. It is the border between the U.S. and Canada. We follow this episodic journey that includes coming across a German community in Canada, a patriotic fur trapper played by Laurence Olivier, and an eccentric artist who lives in the wilderness played by Leslie Howard. With each new situation the crew comes across, their views on Nazism and the war are challenged and their group begins to unravel. Here's one I want to point out about this one that makes it so extraordinary and unique, and I want to I want to offer a challenge to you guys. The main characters are the bad guys. None of the good guys are on screen for more than t- 10 to 15 minutes at a time, and this is such a rare device in movies to follow the bad guys, and honestly, it's not something I can remember seeing. I don't remember a movie where the good guys are treated as obstacles the bad guys have to get through. It's usually the reverse. It works brilliantly. Can you guys think of any movies that have ever done that before? Not that isn't an anti-hero. But, he, but right, it, even yeah, the anti-hero yeah. is still a type of hero. Exactly. Um, this the, it, this feels like Alien, except it's a good guy picking off the crew instead of a big scary monster. It's, it's like the total <laughs> yeah. flip of what you would normally yeah, expect, yeah. and I love that. And I'm surprised no movie's ever done it since, that I can think of at least. This film was made as pure propaganda because in 1941, the British were standing alone against Hitler and desperately needed the U.S. to enter the war. Otherwise, Hitler would have overrun the globe. But the propaganda is subtle, and it's not exaggerated based on what we now know. It's also why there are so many big British stars in it from the time, because they all forewent their fee to help make it, knowing it was critical to the war effort of the time. One of the most interesting segments of the film is when the German subcrew comes across a community of Germans that have lived in Canada for years, that have fled there a long time before. They're a peaceful community, and while the crew assumes they'll join their side simply because they were all born in the same country, they find themselves in a fascinating dilemma when they're opposed by people who they consider fellow Aryans. They're rejected by the leader of the community, played by the wonderful Anton Walbrook, a a fixture in the Powell and Pressburger films, who gives an amazing speech rebuking everything they stand for. You call us brothers. Yes, most of us are Germans. Our names are German, our tongue is German, our old handwritten books are in German scripts. But we are not your brothers. Our German is dead. You talk about a new order in Europe! Then you order where there will not be one corner, not a hole big enough for a mouse, where a decent man can breathe freely. You and your Hitlerism are like the microbes of some filthy disease, filled with a longing to multiply yourselves 
until you destroy everything healthy in the world. No. We are not your brothers. Yeah, I've been wanting to see this movie again for a long time. I remember, Lance, you had a couple of us over to watch it five or six years ago, and it blew me away. It wasn't like anything I'd ever seen before. It's a, it's a strange movie because even in the Powell and Pressburger films, it's an underrated movie. It was like an underrated movie in a group of underrated movies. <laughs> One thing about Powell and Pressburger is their films are so... They're like Hitchcock in a way. Their films are so visual. Mm-hmm. I feel like I watch a lot of older movies, and they're instantly kind of forgettable just because right. there's no like visual things to hold on to. But that's one thing about Powell and Pressburger is that it almost feels like you're watching a modern modern day movie the way that they film them. Yeah, let me say too, uh, you know, at, at some point in future episodes we'll get to other Powell and Pressburger movies. These aren't the three best visual ones that I would have picked. Right. Red True. Shoes, Black Narcissus. Those are movies that are awe-inspiring cinematography. Powell was very much loved by everybody that was part of the Zoetrope movement, the, mm-hmm. or not movement, but studio. And that was the young filmmakers that came out of the 70s. Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, Spielberg was part of it, Martin Scorsese was part of it. That's one reason Scorsese is such a big champion of his films. They saw Powell's career kind of flame out, and they loved Powell. They'd grown up on his movies. They loved him and they really championed him and they actually hired him to help run Zoetrope Studios. So he was very much involved in the film world for huh. years afterwards working with Francis Ford Coppola. Like he was huh. he was good friends with all wow. of those guys. He just never made movies himself after that right. really. It all is right. very much a shame. Jordan, your number one rogue film. Alright, number one. Bad Timing is the name of this movie. Released in 1980. The closer in this trio of Nicholas Rogue movies in which he cast rock stars. This one stars Art Garfunkel. Obviously, rock star might be a little generous for Garfunkel, so perhaps we'll say um, Monster of Folk. Does that work for you guys? <laughs> Monster of Folk. <laughs> anyway, Bad Timing is a story of a psychiatrist and a young married woman. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> a young married woman, just one, both living in Vienna, who meet at a party and enter into a passionate relationship of sexual obsession. Very much opposites, Dr. Alex Linden, the psychiatrist played by Garfunkel, and Milena Flaherty, the young married woman played by Teresa Russell. The two of them are so opposite that their relationship creates such cavernous fault lines that neither of them may be able to escape. While Milena is hospitalized after an over the police become suspicious of Dr. Linden, led by a detective played by Harvey Keitel. In my opinion, this is Rogue's masterpiece. It's the pinnacle of all the parts he'd been perfecting throughout the 70s. It's two hours of uncompromising intimacy, dirty and sweet, harsh, brutal, and excruciating. The editing, as is signature in any Rogue film, is non-linear and looping, skipping around like our memories work naturally. And it's never been more powerful than in bad timing. It isn't pretentious or gimmicky. It's simply the most effective way to tell the story. It feels effortless, completely consuming my imagination, my emotions, and my willingness to believe in the characters. Rogue's camera placement and movement are stunningly beautiful. Absolutely everything in this movie is in its right place. In a way, it's difficult to talk about because so much of its power is in the visual aspect of the film. I haven't actually done this yet, but I'd be interested to see the movie without any sound. I'd be willing to bet that it would still hold much of its power. But I don't want to belittle the dialogue. It's phenomenal as well. It's such an apt reflection of the path that so many relationships take, and ultimately where they may be headed if not cut off in time. The two main characters vacation together in Morocco and Lyndon is inspired to ask Milena to marry him. She refuses, but only because she only wants to live in the moment. It's in these moments when Lyndon can't lock her down, can't possess her. He's unable to understand how they can be together and love each other without also being possessive. And it's in these instances that he becomes unhinged, that his love becomes deformed and mutates into destructive obsession. I watch this movie and I see my younger self in some of my past relationships and how I've been on both sides of 
this equation. How this tension in romantic relationships can easily get out of control and how fragile they really are. It's extremely rare that a rock star is able to not ruin a movie they're in, much less that they be the lead character in a great movie. Somehow Rogue was able to direct these three and get convincing, quality, exceptional performances out of each one of them. And in the case of Bad Timing, a cinematic masterpiece. Let's all admit that Paul Simon was great in Annie Hall, but Garfunkel finally got a chance to cross that bridge and transcend the troubled water, soaring high above Simon in this outstanding gem in Rogue's So what's canon. his deal with uh, rock stars? Why was that a thing for Rogue? I think that he... That was his world? No, I don't think it was his world. I think the movies were his world. I mean, he worked on Lawrence of Arabia and all this. I think he thought that he could get the performances out of them and he could get the funding by having these giant stars in his movies so people would be interested in them. And it creates a different atmosphere than, you know, just getting <coughs> yeah. Tom Cruise. Shout out to old uh, Nicholas Rogue, who must have been quite the rogue because he was 52 and Teresa Russell, 23. Yeah. And uh, they yeah. got married. Yeah. And they were married for, uh, yeah, for a for, good long while. Yeah. Had some kids together. Good for them. You used the word effortless to describe this movie. And I think that's a great description because so little effort <laughs> seems to have been put into it. <laughs> wow. I, I love this quote that an executive at the Rank Organization said, it's a sick film made by sick people for sick people. He really <laughs> dove into his vocabulary for that one, first off. Um, no, I, I, I make fun of you, but I, I didn't love this movie primarily because I didn't connect with anyone. And as poor job as that executive did describing it, he did get to the heart of my problem with it, which is namely, I just I didn't find any of these characters worth sympathizing with. And that was kind of problematic for me. And maybe that was his point. Maybe it was very much about, hey, watch these lost people doing crazy things. But no, it I just didn't, it didn't work for me. I, th I think to relate with these people, you would have had to have been someone that had been involved in a relationship of sexual obsession, but that, that went down this sort of, not to the extent that this one went, but this is arguably my favorite rogue film. Yeah. And and I really do relate Who's a lot with these characters. With you about that? My other me, the <laughs> other me, the part of me that loves Don't Look Now. Rogue is, is somewhat obsessed with relationships between men and women. Mm -hmm. You can break Rogue down into two themes that he's obsessed with. The relationship between men and women. And David Bowie's um, penis. No. <laughs> and time. Really, none of his movies are linear. They're all told in this disjointed sort of cut up way. And clocks are always in there. It's it's very time centric. I mean, I, I understand that you why you didn't connect with it or, or love it, but I, I wish you had. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's okay. All right. Back to a movie we can all connect with. <laughs> Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, the 1987 film. Once again, showing off for all us writers, Hughes wrote the first 60 pages in six hours. The movie tells the story of Neil Page, played by Steve Martin, an uptight ad exec trying to return home to his family for Thanksgiving in Chicago after a business meeting in New York City. He hits every possible roadblock from someone stealing his cab to his flight getting delayed. Along the way, he meets Dale Griffith, played by John Candy, who is Neil's polar opposite. He's a messy, overly friendly, barely held together shower ring salesman. The two immediately butt heads, but are drawn together by circumstance and necessity. After being forced to share a room together, Neil lays into Dale in one of the best movie rants of all time. He says, You know, everything is not an anecdote. You have to discriminate. You choose things that are that are funny or or mildly amusing or interesting. You're a miracle. Your stories have none of that. They're not even amusing accidentally. Honey, I'd, li I'd like you to meet Del Griffith. He's got some amusing anecdotes for you. Oh, and here's a gun so you can blow your brains out. You'll thank me for it. <sighs> I, I, I could tolerate any any insurance seminar. For days, I could sit there and listen to them go on and on with a big smile on my face. They'd say, how can you stand it? And I'd say, because I've been with Del Griffith. I can take anything. And Del responds with, you want to hurt me? Go right ahead if it makes you feel any better. I'm an easy target. 
Yeah, you're right. I talk too much. I also listen too much. I could be a cold-hearted cynic like you. But I don't like to hurt people's feelings. Well, you think what you want about me. I'm not changing. I like, I like me. My wife likes me. My customers like me. Because I'm the real article. What you see is what you get. And it's this back and forth of cynicism and sweetness that makes this movie work so well. Just like in his previous two movies, you relate to both characters equally, and that's where Hughes works his magic. The two continue to journey by the titular planes, trains, and automobiles. Say that word again. <laughs> as their relationship gets more and more strained. This is the only R-rated movie I've allowed my son to watch, and it's really a PG movie except for one particular scene. After Neil finds his rental car stolen, his on-screen rant is the sole reason for the movie receiving an R rating. You can start by wiping that dumbass smile off your rosy cheeks. Then you can give me a automobile, a Datsun, a Toyota, a Mustang, a Buick, four wheels and a seat. I really don't care for the way you're speaking to me. And I really don't care for the way your company left me in the middle of nowhere with keys to a car that isn't there. And I really didn't care to walk down a highway and across a runway to get back here to have you smile at my face. I want a car right now. I won't spoil the ending in case you haven't seen it, but it's one of my favorites of all time. Beautiful and heartwarming without being overly cheesy. The movie falls into place perfectly. Inarguably the best Thanksgiving movie of all time and definitely in my top 10 comedies of all time as well. It's hilarious and relatable and incredibly touching. Hughes created two of the greatest characters of all time. Found a great quote from Casey Birchby of DVD Talk, which I'm assuming is not around anymore. It's now Blu-ray talk. <laughs> yeah. It's now digital streaming talk. Uh, who said, John Hughes, like a lot of other filmmakers who specialized in comedy during the 1980s knew how to explore a varied range of tones in crafting a full-bodied movie that went well beyond the one-note comedies that are par for the course. Hughes took comedy subgenres such as the teen film, the buddy movie, the family comedy, and the road film and boosted these flattened out cliche-bound stories with robust characters capable of generating believably absurd cinematic situations. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles displays Hughes' powers at their height, as well as Steve Martin and John Candy and two of their very best roles. Uh, the thing I remember most about seeing this is kind of the shocking twist at the end. I mean, that's Don't what really it. grabs your heart. Yeah, I'm not going to be Hudson and spoil it, but literally everybody's probably seen this movie too. I think this movie's interesting because you think about John Hughes, like pretty much anytime people talk about John Hughes, it's about high school, like yeah. you described with the first two. And this one is so John Hughes, but doesn't fit in that. That's exactly right. Which well, is great. Part, yeah, and part of the reason it doesn't fit is because this feels like the movie John Hughes made for adults. Mm -hmm. It was the first time he kind of got out of that high school world. Would it be fair to call John Hughes, the quintessential director of the 80s? Because the only other name that comes to mind for me is Spielberg, but right. to me, Spielberg's movies are not bound by the 80s, whereas Hughes are. That's true. They're so I wonder 80s. if he isn't kind of the definitive 80s director in a way. I mean, I'm sure there's many, many directors that you could argue during that time period, but I mean, part His of it was he just hurt. Part uh -huh. of it is he stopped making movies in the 90s, so it's kind of easy to say, well, yeah. he only made movies in the 80s. I think he's even something more than that, though, in that he's the quintessential character director. Like, I don't think any 
anybody does characters like John Hughes yeah. did, especially in comedies. And it was easy to pigeonhole him as, oh, well, he gets teenagers. But then he goes and makes this and he goes and makes exactly. she's having a baby. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, he just understands people. He understands what makes things funny and he understands what makes things genuine. He can lay on these kind of heartwarming moments without it seeming cheesy in a really impressive way. Yeah, You couldn't confine him to anything. It's almost like he grew up with the people that grew up with his movies yeah. and understood every season of life and how to lampoon it and really get to the to what made it tick and to get to the really pull the heartstrings of every season of life that you go through. And he did it with this tone that I've never seen anybody really equal or capture that same like, I mean, it's such a generic word to use, but there's a magic to his movies that is so specific to him. And you know, I mean, you talk about the auteur theory, this idea that like directors are the ones who completely creatively control a movie. And he, he gives a lot of weight to that argument because he's one of those guys that you get 10 minutes into a John Hughes movie, you know, you're watching a John Hughes movie. He also kind of does this thing that I think goes back to what Powell and Pressburger did, where there, there was always an easy way out in his movies, but he would kick it up a notch with something. And, and we won't get into the end of what he did with Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, but this could have, could have easily ended as just a buddy comedy movie. Yeah. And he said, no, no, this is going to be something way more profound than that. And that's why these movies stick with us, I think. It's because he was willing to kind of kick it into that extra gear. That and the pillow scene. The infamous yeah. pillow scene. Yeah. That might have been part of it. <laughs> Those aren't pillows. That was your, your friend, uh, Billy D. Williams. Oh, thank you. Those aren't pillows, you crazy pirate. Hey, guys, what are you excited about this week? I'm excited that six of seven Albert Brooks films are on Netflix streaming. Wow. <laughs> so Dang you can it. go watch we them whenever. excuse. Uh, the only one that's not is actually my favorite film of his, Defending Your Life. But oh. uh, it's easily rentable on Amazon or... You can buy it at Best Buy for $4.99. I'm excited about the one person that's going to listen to this and get excited about watching a Nicholas Rogue movie, and they're going to watch it, and they're going to be like, you know what? Jordan was right. This guy's awesome. Nick Rogue's son. I'm excited to hear more Rogue puns. Yeah, yeah. we need to be one of our Facebook things. What's the best Rogue pun you can come up with? I'm going to say I'm excited about, I just took a trip out to California on my way back here. I watched a movie on the plane, and that movie is Captain Fantastic. It was fantastic. Excellent movie about a... uh, father played by Vigo Mortensen, who uh, is raising six kids in kind of the middle of the wilderness, putting them through kind of a rigorous childhood and raising them with, you know, questionable books and questionable um, activities. And it's just fantastic. Now, that didn't really do it service, but... But, it, but calling it fantastic did. <laughs> <laughs> really, really great movie. Really well done. Um, just really well written and acted. And uh, I highly recommend you seek it out. It's on, you know, streaming and stuff. I saw the trailer for Captain Fantastic in the theater six or eight months ago and no joke, my eyes were filled with tears in that two and a half minutes <laughs> yeah. of the trailer. Gibby's probably were too. Yeah, uh, I don't actually think I ever saw a preview of it but I have read about it and it got good reviews coming out of his film festivals in I the thought summer. you said you, <laughs> you, cried. <laughs> you cried during reading a review. <laughs> cried reading the reviews. I could see that. This is kind of an unintentional tease to our next episode but I got very ill last week. And while I was sick, I watched the Ken Burns documentary, The War, about World War II, which is one of the greatest documentary series I've ever seen. You'd seen it before. So instead I'd of watching any of the 90-minute Albert Brooks films over the past week while you were sick, you watched the 14 I'd rather watch people kill each other <laughs> for the world. That's right. That is correct. <laughs> Say lovey. Rather watch still pictures I've, slowly I've always, get bigger. I've, I've, I've always been obsessed with the story of World War II. I think it's one of the greatest stories ever told, and it really happened. Ken Burns is such a master 
feature filmmaker. I'm going to hint in him a little bit in our next episode, even though he didn't make feature films per se. Incredible filmmaker and so an incredible movie. You're going to hit on him and just hope that he's I listening? Would. I'd go out with him. Did we get everybody? Did everybody do there? Everybody did, did it. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. We will see you next week. Thank you. Hi there. Join us next week when we'll yap about documentary films, including one that makes us very hungry, three that made Gibby cry, one that pretty much accuses everybody of being a Satanist, and one that punched Lance right in the gut. Not that he has a gut. The man's in pretty great shape. Until then, here's a message from a man that once ate his entire shoe. Bon appetit. This is Werner Herzog. Let us know how your list differs at, at Fight About Film on Facebook and Twitter. Or email us at fightaboutfilm at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Four Friends Fight About Film is produced by the Brothers Ray in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was recorded and edited by Jordan Noel. Have you ever seen a gay penguin? Should it be?